This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, we do love a good origin story on Dressed, and today's topic is no exception. Because while we might all know what a sailor uniform looks like, how many of us know its origins? I know I did not. Or how the sailor collar specifically made its way into being a staple of fashionable attire for men, women, and children for, oh, let's say the past 150 years. And today we have the origin stories of not one, but actually two fashionable collars because we also had a listener request about the origins of the Peter Pan collar. So lots to uncover here today, April. Yes. Um, and our first inquiry comes by way of Betsy, who wrote to us to say, quote, always easily wooed by the sailor collar. I have accidentally collected a surprising number of vintage patterns with sailor collars on everything from a halter dress from the 70s, very cute, to jackets and short sets from the 1950s, maybe a little juvenile for a mature woman. And I won't even list the children's patterns ranging from babies to tweens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there is no there is no such thing as too many Betsy, just so you know. <laughs> um, but she goes on to say, this leads me to my question about sailor collars, because the squared off back with a more traditional V-shaped front collar, including a tie, has been in existence on Navy uniforms the world over for centuries. And there must have been a purpose behind this design. Do you know what it is? Well, before this, I did not, but now we do because we did some fashion history digging. So thanks for writing, Betsy. And what a fantastic question. This question actually sent us back hundreds of years and led to some rather surprising finds. For instance, April, it might seem obvious after I say this, but navy blue, well, it got its name because of the dark blue employed in the blue and white uniforms of officers in the British Royal Navy, following the regulation of said uniforms in 1748. But while the officers of the then most powerful naval fleet in the world had regulated uniforms by the mid-18th century, which were essentially decorated tailored suits that reflected their social status as much as their position, the low man on the totem pole, the sailor, did not. And there appears to have been many reasons for this, one of them being that there was a high turnover rate in this position, and also that it was not a position that was really respected and thus deserving of a sort of acknowledgement or the monetary allotment of funds for this purpose. So, 
Let's be honest. It was these sailors, not the suited officers, that were doing the hard labor. These men wore clothing that were, by all accounts, as practical as they could be for the hard work that they were doing. And that meant that they needed clothing that was easy to work in, but also clothing that protected the body from sun, wind, and their main professional hazard, which is, of course, water. Which is actually how many of these men earned the nickname TARS, So during my research, I came across this great blog called British Tars, 1740 to 1790, and it's maintained by Kyle Dalton, who's a specialist in 18th century maritime culture and early United States history. And he says that his goal with this blog was really to explore the appearance of common British and American sailors in the half century prior to the French Revolutionary Wars through primary source artwork. And it's really cool. I suggest checking it out. He has incredible documentation on there, which includes a surprising number of personal memoirs by sailors and journals of these 18th century sailors. So check it out. Oh yeah, that's always super valuable when you can find those. And it turns out that the British tars and subsequently the American tars earned their name from the use of tarring. And tar is of course a natural liquid derived from coal or wood that prior to the invention of synthetics had been used to waterproof and seal anything from sails on boats to the clothing on sailors' own bodies. And it is clear from the abundance of primary source images on Kyle's blog that while the sailor in the 18th and early 19th centuries did not yet have an official uniform, they are really nonetheless loosely uniform in appearance. So, you know, they're all pretty much wearing a hat, a short jacket, short trousers, and always a neckerchief, presumably to wick sweat. Accounts suggest that sailors even went barefoot on deck, which is kind of hard to imagine, but I assume something that was necessary prior to waterproof shoes. It just seems dangerous to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hello, splinters. Um, and some of you might remember that one of our recent guests, Amber Butchart, um, came on the show to talk to us about her work as a dress detective, but she's written several books, one of which is called Nautical Chic. And in that, she provided some really great insight into this subject, attributing the unofficial uniformity of sailors on deck to something that was called the slop chest. Which I have to, of course, say it threw me for a loop when I first read it because I've always associated slop with what people feed pigs. But apparently in the UK and Australia, slop clothing is basically this form of cheap, ready-made, really inexpensive apparel. Namry writes about it saying, but it was really the slop chest that led to a degree of uniformity for sailors in many European navies. The practice of the slop chest ready-made clothes available on board to replace garments that had worn out, was also a feature of life at sea for French and American navies, and in Britain, dates all the way back to the 17th century. The original supplies consist of a number of items that are still to this day associated with maritime life, including red caps, blue neck cloths, blue wool jackets, and the availability of these items, which were paid for from the sailor's own pocket, ensured that a mariner's working uniform had a loose uniformity even before it was centrally regulated. So we've established that neck cloths or kerchiefs have been a necessary staple of sailor dress since at least the 18th century. But I guess we still haven't quite answered where that square sailor collar developed from. Although I am going to tell you, I did read more than a few theories 
One being that was originally worn as a form of protection for the jacket because sailors supposedly put that waterproofing tar in their hair. Oh, lordy. (laughs) Another said that the square sailor collar and black neckerchief mimicked the wide collar points and black cravat worn by fashionable gentlemen during this period. Amber similarly acknowledges that the now iconic sailor collar has quote-unquote murky origins. While forerunners have traced it back to the 17th century, the collar as we know it began to take its distinctive shape in the late 18th century. Whatever its exact origins, this square collar was part of the official sailor uniform when it was finally regulated in 1857. But as Amber goes on to tell us, quote, in reality, it regulated what was already the norm on many ships. Yeah, in fact, the British Royal Navy sailor uniform, uh, aforementioned being regulated in 1857, was actually based on those already being worn by sailors on Queen Victoria's royal yacht. And it was these sailor summer uniforms, which consisted of a white pant and white shirt, that employed the now iconic square sailor collar. In fact, April, Queen Victoria loved this uniform so much that in 1846, she had the sailor tailor make one up in miniature for her four-year-old son, Prince Albert, the future King Edward VII. And I think it might surprise our listeners to know, Cass, that it was this four-year-old prince who was largely responsible for making the sailor collar fashionable. Royal portraitist Franz Winterhalter immortalized the young lad in this adorable replica outfit in an 1846 portrait, and the image of the sailor-attired prince was subsequently disseminated to the public through prints. And it was not long before everyone's children, both girls and boys alike, were wearing their own sailor and inspired ensembles. Which, of course, continues into today. And something I actually found quite charming was that it was Prince Albert's future oh-so-fashionable wife, Alexandra, who would help to make the sailor collar oat-fashionable for women. So by the 1860s, late 1860s in Harper's Bazaar, for instance, you do start seeing the first references to sailor collars in women's dress, especially those worn beachside for the obvious nautical references. But when Princess Alexandra stepped out April in the 1880s in her impeccably tailor-made suit with its sailor collar, well, there was just no going back. And I actually, I have to wonder if she knew the reference she was making to her her husband as a child. And, you know, of course, we did an episode about the fashionable queen consort of England, uh, Queen Alexandra with Kate Strasden last season. So check it out. Yeah. And the collar eventually found its way into women's sportswear around the same time, being worn on everything from basketball uniforms to bathing suits and eventually school uniforms. And as we already know, the sailor collar is one of those reoccurring themes among many fashion designers' work, from Scaparelli's famous 1920s trompe l'oeil sweater to numerous works by Jean-Paul Gaultier, the sailor collar will surely continue to charm its way into the future. As will the Peter Pan collar, April. So while we're on the subject of collars, we thought it only fitting to answer another listener collar inquiry. Hannah actually wrote to us in April inquiring about the origins of the so-called Peter Pan collar. What we know today as a Peter Pan collar is essentially a flat collar with curved edges. And it is a staple design feature and has been for quite some time. But just where did it earn its name? And this actually required substantially less digging than the sailor question, and one that actually has a pretty concise answer. The Peter Pan collar earned its name because it was worn by, well, Peter Pan, 
the most famous boy who never wanted to grow up. Okay, it was not actually worn by Peter Pan, but rather the woman playing Peter Pan (laughs) in the 1905 Broadway production, to be exact, Maude Adams. And yes, you heard cast correctly. It was actually quite common at this time for women to play the roles of boys in productions, and this popular play was no exception. And actually, cast, Disney just announced their upcoming live televised production of Peter Pan, and they have selected actress Allison Williams to play the part, who some of you might know from Girls. Yes, there's actually quite a long history of women in the role of Peter Pan in J.M. Barry's popular play, Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up. And actually, it was actress Nina Boussicol who originated the role in the play's debut in London in 1904. However, it was the American actress Maude Adams who would make the role internationally famous when she debuted the role on Broadway in New York to great fan fair on November 6, 1905. The New York Times heralded, quote, a joyous night with Peter Pan, Maude Adams triumphs as the boy who would not grow up, continuing on saying, Maude Adams is Peter, most ingratiatingly simple and sympathetic, true to the fairy idea, true to the child nature, lovely, sweet, and wholesome. She combines all the delicate sprightliness and the gentle, wistful pathos necessary to the role, and she is supremely in touch with the spirit of it all. And reading about this production, actually, I found it so incredibly lovely that one of the parts of the play is that is this audience participation. So when Tinkerbell is dying, Peter invites the audience, who is presumably mostly adults, to save the the waning fairy by clapping to show that they believed in fairies. And I just found that really, Aww. really magical and special. And uh, I don't know, April, are you familiar with the uh, Robin Williams movie Hook? Of course. <laughs> That's one of my absolute Favorite, favorite childhood movies starring Robin Williams and Julia Roberts. And then, of course, there's also the film Finding Neverland, which is more about the fictionalized, semi-fictionalized version of Barry's relationship with the family that inspired the making of Peter Pan. So if you haven't seen either of those movies, I highly suggest checking them out. Yeah, and just to touch back on the play a little bit, the play was a huge success, and Maude even took her role to an international audience when she toured Europe, and images were spread around the globe depicting the actress and character with her leaf-covered costume adorned with, you guessed it, a curved, flat-falling collar. So just as we saw with the buckled slipper associated with the popular comic book strip Buster Brown, we've already done a mini-sode about this, his girlfriend Mary Jane would become Mary Jane's shoes. So exactly the same thing happened here. This collar henceforth became associated in the popular imagination with this fictional character, Peter Pan. That does it for this week, Dress listeners. Remember to tune in this Tuesday for our full edition of Dressed. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will also find images accompanying each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And a reminder to head on over to likemindstravel.com and sign up for the newsletter to keep apprised of all the developments surrounding our exciting June 2020 Dressed Fashion History Tour of Paris. Our tentative itinerary is posting soon, so be sure and check it out. 
For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. We'd love seeing you all in your merch. So please keep sharing your photos. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pigram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.